Hello from Clio Cloud Conference 2016 in Chicago, Illinois. I'm Victor Lee. And I'm Ed Walters. And we're on the road with Legal Talk Network. Thank you so much for joining us on the road. It's a pleasure to be here at the Clio Cloud Conference. I'm here with the highly esteemed Ed Walters. My name is Victor Lee. I'm a legal affairs writer with the ABA Journal. And uh, Ed, could you just tell us a little bit about, about yourself? Yeah, so I'm the CEO of Fastcase in my day job. Um, I co-founded it with Phil Rosenthal in 1999. Uh, and then uh, I teach the law of robots at Georgetown University Law Center. For those people that weren't able to attend your uh, talk yesterday at the Clio Cloud Conference, I know you talked about um, the law of, of robots and the need to establish a rule of law. But could you talk a little bit about what you what you went over yesterday, just for people who you know maybe wanted to be there but couldn't, but couldn't, and just give you like a quick highlight of what you went over? Yeah. So I, I'm really talking about the robotic revolution as um, an event in American history, as big as the industrial revolution or as the invention of the internet. And really, in a way, the robotic revolution marries those two together. It's the first time we combine the software of the internet age with the hardware of the industrial revolution together. Machines that can do things we never anticipated before that can in some sense think. And the, the question we ask in the law of robots is, how does our law have to change to deal with these machines? Do we just apply existing common law, existing statutes, existing regulations to new facts, or are robots so different that we have to pass new laws, think about things totally differently uh, in order to uh, reflect these in our society? It's a really hard question. And so that's, that's what I was talking about yesterday. One interesting kind of unintuitive part of it is that when you do that kind of examination, you really have to think hard about what values our law is made to protect. And sometimes the introduction of new machines, of thinking machines, of robots, of self-driving cars, of surgical robots, Sometimes the introduction of these new facts sheds light on gray areas of the law we couldn't see before. Gaps in the law that weren't apparent until you have these kind of new facts to apply. Certainly there'll be lots of cases where we can apply existing law. We did that a lot in cyberspace where we talked about you know, whether Google was a common carrier. That's law from like the railroads, right? But we applied it to new facts. We'll do that with robots as well. So that's what I was talking about. I was kind of introducing this central question of the law of robots class. Do we just apply old law? If we don't, you know, if we pass new law, who does it? What kinds of laws will we need? And what values are we trying to uphold when we pass those new laws? Gotcha. So, um, so I mean, obviously, you know, going to these tech conferences and being around tech people, you know, I mean, maybe. Maybe you're, maybe what you see as as robots in the law and and robots in everyday society um, is what you see. But for many other people, you know, maybe they don't really realize just how prevalent robots are or, or, or AI is already in their everyday lives. Let's so talk a little bit about that. Like like like, where are we sort of in that robotic that robotic revolution that you were talking about? Yeah, we always think about this as something for our distant future, right? This will be a problem that our kids or our grandkids will have. These machines are all around, like every day, right? So uh, I, I sort of point out in my talk, if you, if you uh, look at auto manufacturing, it's almost all done by machines. The new Tesla factory has like 249 assembly robots that build a Tesla. And Elon Musk has said, we don't even need lights in the factory. 
the machines know where everything is, they can build the cars by themselves. I mean, there are actually people on the floor, but they're mostly there to pick up screws and things if the machines drop them. And so, uh, this is already happening kind of around us. If you, uh, if you, if you hear us talking about military campaigns, so many of them are conducted by drone today. If you know someone who's had prostate cancer surgery, chances are good that it was done by a Da Vinci robot. Even in the practice of law, uh, electronic discovery is really thinking machines doing tasks that lawyers did for a generation. Back when I was a lawyer, I'm feeling kind of old here, but you know, back in the late 90s when I was a lawyer, when you did discovery, that meant going to a warehouse full of documents, right? And going through them box by box, person by person. My firm did a, um, an M&A transaction where we had two floors of a building filled with lawyers and paralegals going through tens of thousands of boxes of documents. We don't do that anymore. That entire process, if you code it right, could take a couple of weeks with a few lawyers who train electronic discovery software and tell them what kind of documents will be responsive and what kind of documents will be privileged. And that's all machine learning. That completely replaces jobs that lawyers had in the past. So this isn't really a conversation about our distant future. It's not a conversation for our kids or our grandkids. This is a conversation for us. It's happening right now all around us. One thing that you talked about uh, during uh, your talk yesterday was the need to um, create a rule of law for robots. Um, so what are, what, are, what are some obstacles that you see to doing that and how close are we to uh, bringing that to fruition? Well, maybe a good example will illustrate that point. Uh, if you think about self-driving cars, uh, that's a huge conundrum, right? Our existing traffic laws don't really deal with driverless cars. They mostly focus on the drivers, right? If a driver commits an infraction, the driver gets a ticket. It's not like the car gets a ticket. Driverless cars might not even have a passenger in them. So how do we deal with that? Do you have a speeding ticket for the car, for the owner, for the person who makes the software? No one really knows the answer, right? And these are questions uh, that are very current because as we all know, like you know, the, the Uber taxis are on the street now in Pittsburgh. There are Google self-driving cars all over the 101. Daimler-Benz, many others are already pioneering these autonomous technologies. Uh, sort of a step beyond that, who regulates it? So traditionally, uh, car laws are passed by states. Every state has its own automotive statutes dealing with things that are against the law. So you have like jug handle left turns in New Jersey. Some states have right turn on red, others don't. You have different licensing requirements and those are done by the states. Are states going to be able to license whether self-driving cars are ready for their roads or not? Will they have the technical expertise? Or are we going to have to have a federal set of laws that, that uh, regulate self-driving cars on all American roads? That's a really hard question we don't know the answer to yet. And actually, the Department of Transportation uh, just yesterday, on September 19th, passed their first draft of their kind of uh, federal regulations that are going to uh, deal with self-driving cars planting a big flag in the ground saying there is going to be federal regulation of self-driving cars. The last thing I'll say is, you know, beyond the kind of state versus federal regulation question, there is a public-private question too. There is going to be a network of all these self-driving cars. They're going to talk to each other. There's going to be a network of sensors on the streets, in the highways, in the cars, in the sky that keeps cars from crashing into each other. Who owns that network? Is that going to be like the public interstate highway system that's owned by the federal government and regulated for the public's benefit? 
or will it be a private network where we have another uh, example of like you know Google versus Facebook versus Uber fighting over who is going to own that public infrastructure. This could be another version of like uh, iOS versus Android or uh, the browser wars of the 90s and aughts over the public network uh, for our self-driving cars and roads. I think one thing that you mentioned and, and just now, but also yesterday, we, just, we just talked sort of about that federal versus state uh, tension. And I mean, obviously there's all kinds of political issues, there's all kinds of cultural issues as well. But um, I mean, what do you think will ultimately uh, be the outcome? Because I mean, you know, without getting too political here, I mean, it's, it's difficult for the federal government to, to pass anything now. <laughs> right. um, I mean, you know, we, we've seen, they, 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 they can't even agree on like naming post offices anymore. So, so, so how, and especially, also throw in the fact that many of these people are lawyers and they're, um, maybe they're being advised by other law firms on you know, K Street and beyond. So how can we uh, expect the federal government to be able to you know, be ahead of the curve on this? Well, a lot of the regulations happily are done by agencies. So it doesn't have to be always a bill before a legislature and that's good. One benefit of the agencies is that's also where a lot of the expertise is. So you know, I love my member of Congress but I don't think there's enough expertise in Congress anywhere to figure out what the regulations should be for self-driving cars. Luckily though, the agencies do have a lot of expertise. The Department of Transportation, a lot of secretaries of state's offices really understand uh, cars and this autonomous future. And so there is some hope that you will have you know, really skilled regulators with deep industry expertise who are, you know, who are going to be passing these regulations. Now, one downside of that is that it's kind of a single point of failure. You know, an agency can get things wrong, and agencies can be very influenced by private companies, right? So you really could have Google or Uber or Daimler Chrysler or somebody lobbying that individual regulator in California. Um, but it, the, the consequences are very large. So one good example of this, California just passed its first self-driving car statute. This was legislative. And one of their requirements was that every car have a steering wheel. Now, Google has an entire fleet of self-driving cars. Its whole uh, 2013 generation of self-driving cars has no steering wheels. They're like, cues the button, you know, you sit in them, but there's no gas pedal, there's no brake, there's no steering wheel. Not in California, right? That was a, a single decision that changed the entire industry. The consequences are, I mean, the, the stakes here are really big. Why, why was it? Is it just so that, you know, so like a human could override, override the robot if, if, if necessary? Is that, was that why it was? Yeah, I, th I think it's a safety measure. I think this was an incremental step by California saying, one day, we're sure the software will be good enough to operate independently. We're not at that day today. There will be circumstances where you need a human to take control of the car. And if that's true, they're going to need a steering wheel, a gas pedal, and a brake pedal. Parenthetically, I'm not sure that's wrong. I just don't think it's going to be the solution for all time. Gotcha. The, uh, the self-driving cars in Pittsburgh, by the way, um, constantly switch back and forth. So Uber has a driver in the driver's seat, um, and the car will switch back and forth between autonomous driving and manual driving, and you can always override, a human can override the autonomous mode in the car and take control of it. And it's pretty smooth back and forth. It's kind of like a when you engage um, you know, cruise control in your car and then turn it off and then turn it back on, you are constantly you know, trading control back and forth with your car. So it's a little bit like that. Um, 
You know, but another good example that for for years, software has uh, you know controlled the speed of our cars when we put it on cruise control. They control our brakes. You slam on the brakes. There is software that determines based on the conditions how many pulses per second your brakes are going to push to make sure your car is safe. You have no control over that at all. That's all machines. So um, I also wanted to ask you uh, just a little bit about your background because uh, I mean, obviously, I know you as uh, you know CEO of Fastcase. You know, you know, giant in the uh, legal research field and whatnot. Uh. Um, so how did you um, so how did you go from that to you know studying robots? Well, so uh, this was all born a couple of years ago when we started working on Bad Law Bot. This was Fastcase's uh, citator, right? Our, our goal was to build the big, the first big data machine learning citator. So when I found out a few years ago that uh, the kind of academic documented accuracy of Shepardson Keysight was somewhere south of 70%, I thought, man, uh, you could probably do better. You could probably extract information out of the big data in cases. You could train an algorithm with examples of cases we know have been overturned and do better to find out what cases are still good law algorithmically. You could use big data and machine learning to figure that out. And so we started building it. We rolled it out, I think, uh, a couple of years ago. And it worked really well. But my, my second thought behind that was, man, you know, these machine learning techniques are going to replace a lot of editorial jobs. They'll be better, maybe not better in the first cut at it, but over time, certainly better. No one doubts that over time, the machine algorithms will be better at determining what cases are still good law. And it made me think a lot about algorithms and machine learning and uh, you know, robots. So I was, I was riding the train to New York and uh, a friend of mine, Tanita Rostain at Georgetown Law, who runs the Iron Tech Lawyer Program, uh, uh, she and I were talking and I said, hey, you know, Georgetown should do a future tech class where you take some emerging area of law and you figure out how you regulate things that are new. Take robots, for example. Uh, you would have a class that you, you analyze, like self-driving cars, surgical robots, weaponized drones, uh, hobbyist uh, helicopters with GoPros on them, and analyze how you would regulate each one of these emerging fields. And she said, that's a great idea. And I said, so one day when I'm you know, not so busy at Fastcase, I will put together a syllabus, you don't have to tell me how to pitch it to the school. And in her indefatigable way, Tanina said, uh, two days later, she called me and said, hey, good news, you got the class. You're teaching it in six weeks. I said, what are you talking about? I can't possibly teach that class. Uh, and my wife, uh, who I expected to say, what are you talking about? You can't teach that class instead said, you moron, you're never going to get another chance to teach at Georgetown. Take it <laughs> before they change their mind. <laughs> you need to teach that class. It's always good to have a supportive wife yes, on side. Yes, huh? yes, exactly, <laughs> I think. Um, so yeah, it was, a, it was a very, very intense uh, summer and I uh, put together a syllabus for it. It's a super popular class at Georgetown. It's sure. a lot of fun to teach. Before we close it out for today, I have one last question for you. If our listeners want to follow up or chat with you, what's the best way to reach out to you? Oh, get me everywhere. I'm on uh, Twitter. It's uh, at EJ Walters. You can find me on LinkedIn, uh, or uh, you can always get me through the Fastcase website, which is uh, www.fastcase.com. And uh, I'd be very happy to hear people who have additional questions or who want to follow up. Well, we've reached the end of On the Road for today's episode. I want to thank our guests for joining us. Thank you. 
I'm Ed Walters, and this is Legal Talk Network, the most authoritative source for legal geekery online. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. Or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.